This morning, friends, we continue a three-part series as we are reading and reflecting upon the prologue or the preface to the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John. And last Sunday morning, you may recall, if you were present, that we were thinking about the activity of the word, the activity of the word, the activity of Christ, of the Logos, in creation and in human history, and more particularly in this gospel or church age. This morning, we are going to be thinking about the announcement of the word, and God willing, this evening, we shall be thinking about the appearance of the word. We were reminded last Lord's Day morning of the word, the Christ, the Logos, and we noted that the word is pre-existent, the pre-existent word of God. Furthermore, this same word is co-equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, co-equal in all the attributes and perfections that we would ascribe to God the Father. We find all those attributes and perfections also in their fullness in God the Son. These beautiful words, these inspired words before us and the following chapters of this fourth gospel were authored by the Apostle John. He gives us the purpose for the writing of this gospel right toward the end of this gospel, chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So it would appear that this book, this fourth gospel, is for two reasons. First, it is an evangelistic tract. It is written so that others might believe in his name. But it is also designed to be an encouragement to the Lord's people to encourage them in their faith, that they might continue to believe is the sense of those words. So I like to think about the fourth gospel rather like a long portrait gallery in some stately home. I'm sure you're aware of these things when you visited these places and then you come into this long gallery And on either side of the gallery, there are portraits, perhaps of the previous owners of the home and so forth. And so in John's Gospel, chapter 2, for example, presents us with a portrayal of Jesus, the Son of Man. Chapter 3 presents us with Jesus, the Divine Teacher. Chapter 10, Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Chapter 19, the Uplifted Saviour. Chapter 20, the conqueror of death. And chapter 1, particularly the preface, is of the word of God or the eternal son. The key verse in the words before us this morning, and I'm going to be looking more closely now at verses 6 through to 13. The key words there are found at verse 12. Verse 12 But as many as received him, 
To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You're familiar with the background and the context to John the Baptist preaching and also to Christ's ministry also. It was a background of largely unbelief in terms of the Jewish people in that first century. At verse 12, though, we have that little word, but. But as many as received him. As many as received him. And if you read on in this fourth gospel, you will be introduced to just a selection of those Jewish people who received him. For example, in chapter 3, that night interview with Nicodemus. In chapter 1, I could have mentioned the meeting with Peter and the other first apostles. In chapter 4, the woman at the well of Sychar. In chapter 9, the man who was born blind. Just a series of interviews and examples there of individuals who encountered Christ, the Word, and who received him, as many as received Christ. So the announcement of the Word, that's my title this morning, the announcement of the Word, The very first announcement was made in Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15. The Proto-Evangelion, the first reference to the Evangel and to the coming of Messiah. And then throughout the Old Testament era, as we know, there was prophet after prophet. And all these Old Testament prophets chiefly were preaching about Christ. They were preaching about his coming and his person and his work. And in the Old Testament system of ceremonial and the moral law and the whole system of sacrifice, there were the types and the shadows and the figures and the illustrations of Christ. Words of prophecy, announcements of the coming of the word. And they were acting like finger posts. They were like acting as signposts. And they were pointing forward down the running centuries. And they were pointing to a person. And that person was Jesus of Nazareth. So the Jews were waiting for Messiah. Some of them were very definitely expecting Messiah. And I'm going to just remind you of two characters who were in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Soon after the birth of Christ, we read in Luke chapter 2, first of all down at verse 25, and behold there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And then down at verse 28 we read, then took he up in his arms Jesus and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And there was another person in Jerusalem, a lady by the name of Anna, verse 36. She also was looking and waiting for Messiah. And there was one Anna, a prophetess. 
She was a tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, so on. We're told at verse 37, she was a widow, and she departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that look for redemption in Jerusalem. So there were Jews, albeit perhaps a minority at that time, and like Simeon and Anna, they were looking and they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. I'm sure you have stood on a railway platform like me on occasions, often drafty places, And you're standing on the railway platform and then over the public address system comes the announcement. And it's the announcement of your train that you're waiting for. And it's going to be coming along on a certain platform in about 10 minutes time. And then you're standing on the platform and there's a whole bunch of other people standing on the platform and they're all doing the same thing. They're turning their heads and they're looking in this direction, the direction from which the train is going to appear. And why are they doing that? Because they're looking and they're waiting for something. They're waiting for the train to arrive that's going to take them on their journey. And so, friends, today we live in the gospel or church age. And some people wonder in terms of what is happening worldwide. Are we moving into the last days? We do not know. It's not given to us to know the the date and the time as it were. But we're certainly in the last days in that sense. We have been across the gospel age. And so we are looking and we are waiting for Christ. Not for his first coming, but for his second coming. Not for him coming in humility and obscurity and weakness, humanly speaking. But in his second coming, when he will come with power and with great glory, with his holy angels And in his second coming, he is coming for his elect people, the chosen people of God. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. What a contrast. In the first five verses of this prologue, our minds have been set upon the eternal word. The second person of the eternal Godhead, Jesus Christ. And now we read of a man. And this man was sent from God. So note the contrast. Christ, the Word, was, always was. He was from eternity. Christ is the Word. Christ is God. Christ is the real or the true light. Christ is the object of faith. As John the Baptist, he was the way preparer. John the Baptist came. John the Baptist was born as a man. John the Baptist was commissioned and sent by God. John the Baptist was to testify to the light, to be a witness. And it was through the agency and the instrumentality of John the Baptist that other people received him, received Christ for themselves, the true light. 
Verse 7, the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Baptists realized that this Jesus of Nazareth was the long-promised and prophesied Messiah of God. That this Jesus of Nazareth was the Lamb of God. Behold, he exclaimed, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That this was the Almighty God, the Word become flesh, the Saviour of sinners. We read at verse 14, and God willing, we shall look into these words this evening. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 8, he was not that light, the Baptist, but was sent to bear witness of that light. What light is this? This is the light of salvation. As we read at verse 5, the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not, or apprehendeth it not, or the darkness did not lay hold upon it, or did not overtake it. And so Christ came into a dark world, and Christ came to shine as that light of the world. But John the Baptist was not that light, we say that with emphasis, but he was to report And he was to testify and he was to witness to that light. That was his remit. That was his chief task. To be the one who introduced his fellow countrymen to Messiah. Friends, you've read about Messiah throughout Old Testament scripture. You've listened to those scriptures Sabbath day after Sabbath day in the synagogue and in the temple. And now that Messiah of old, he is here. He has come among you. The kingdom of God has arrived and Christ is among his people. And yet sadly we read in chapter 1 at verse 26. When the religious leaders came and rounded on John the Baptist... He answered, John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standing one among you whom you know not. Even the religious leaders of, of his day did not apprehend, did not comprehend that this was the Christ of prophecy. So each one of those first disciples, and ever since that time, Every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is called to be that witness, that reporter of their faith to other people. And we can only do that effectively if we have had that personal experience of Jesus Christ. If we have not only heard about him and know about him, but know him personally, as many as received him, to those who believe on his name. We are called in a sense to be otherworldly. To have our feet firmly planted upon this earth. But to have our heart in heaven. And our affections above. To be effective witnesses. 
So verse 7, the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men might believe through him, might come to believe. Because clearly, in the natural, unregenerate state, people do not believe. In fact, largely, people are in unbelief and rejection of the message of the gospel. And yet, we preach and we witness to people who are living in this present spiritual darkness and we are, we are praying that they might come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace Christ. The verb to believe, and if you want some homework to do later this week, you can check me out. The verb to believe occurs 98 times in the gospel according to John. I think thereabouts anyway. So clearly it is a key word to believe. It's a common word amongst we, the Lord's people. We are familiar with this word, believing. But it's a key word in terms of others having faith in this person. When we believe in the Lord Jesus, in effect we are entrusting our whole lives into his hands and living under his care and submitting our wills to his commands and endeavouring to glorify him and take the spotlight off ourselves and put the spotlight on Christ. Verse 9, that was a true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. In ancient days, or not so ancient days in our culture, I suppose, 100 years ago or more, there used to be what they called shipwreckers. And they set up lights or beacons somewhere close to the shore in the hope that they would wreck a ship. And then they could just ravage it and take all the spoil and the goods for themselves. But no, we're not speaking here about a false light that causes people to be swept onto the rocks of destruction and unbelief. We're speaking here of the true light. The real light. The light that is dependable and guides a soul to the harbour of heaven safely and securely. Christ then, according to scripture here, enlightens every person, every human being. But how does Christ enlighten every human being? First of all, by conscience that inner magistrate that speaks to us if we do wrong, when we sin, the conscience, creation, as we look at the wonderful world which God has created. Do we not see his handiwork in every place? In Holy Scripture, the Bible is a book of revelation. And the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is chiefly about Christ, about the light, the true light that has come into the world. And then, of course, finally in the person of Jesus Christ himself and his works and deeds, his miracles, and chiefly his atoning death and triumphant resurrection from the dead. So we read there, about the world in verse 9, the cosmos, 
The word world appears, so I understand, about 78 times in the fourth gospel. That is clearly another significant word then for the Apostle John. The world, it means the universe. It can mean the earth. It can mean the inhabitants of the world. Chiefly, in gospel terms, the world means that system which is actively organized against God and the people of God. We read in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 2 about people who are in unbelief and that they're under the power of the prince of the air, the arch enemy, Satan. That they're living in under that power and that rule. And in fact, they are slaves. They're enslaved by him who is the prince of the power of the air. And the only way they can be rescued and liberated is by Christ. And Christ's finished work upon Calvary's cross. But look at these words here at verse 10. The light, the word was in the world. The word was made by him. The world knew him not. Just think. Dream for a moment. Or this might be out of your own experience. But you're thinking of building a dream home. And so you employ the architect. And you give him certain specifications and details. And he goes off and does his work, his plans. And then the plans are put into practice and the dream home is is constructed. And you are very pleased with the, the finished work. And a few days later, there comes a knock on your front door. And it's the architect that did all that work for you and the plans. And you close the door in his face. You reject him. You won't have anything to do with him. This is the man who was, uh, who was built responsible for this lovely home that's been built on your behalf. It's absolutely perfect. You're so pleased with it in every way. Christ was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own Received him not. He came unto his own. The Jewish nation. The Jewish people who had become his own purchased possession. A holy nation. A people set apart to God. He came unto his own who long centuries earlier it with a mighty hand God had delivered out of the bondage and slavery of Egypt. Of these people who he directed to the land of promise and walked with them across those many wilderness years and wanderings in that wilderness. He came to his own, whom he'd made that covenant relationship. They were his covenant people. He came to his own for whom Via Moses, he gave them the law, the moral and the ceremonial law. He came unto his own, literally unto his own things, his own home, his own family, his own friends. And so many of them rejected him. And I just turn briefly to Luke chapter 20. And we find there one of the parables of Jesus Christ. 
It's the parable of the husbandmen. Just allow me to read just a few verses from this parable. Luke chapter 20 at verse 13. And this is a parable in the context of those words. Then the Lord of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, particularly the religious leaders and others, and when they heard it, they said, God forbid. And they realized that the parable had been spoken against them, against those who were rejecting the architect, who were rejecting the Messiah of old. So at verse 12, we read the contrast. But as many as received him, as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. In your margins, you probably have the words privilege or right, which is better. Because we're not thinking here about power in the sense of strength and ability. We're thinking here about a privilege, about a right. So therefore, this doesn't mean that we've been given power to change ourselves. To them they were given power to become the sons of God. Oh no, we cannot change ourselves because nature cannot change nature. We need an outside power, an external power to do that mighty work. And so we've been given power. We've experienced that power in our souls, the power of the Holy Spirit to make us into new creatures in Christ Jesus that we may become the sons, the daughters of God, that we may enjoy membership amongst the God's elect people, that we may rest on that name, which is the object of faith, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but were born of God. This, in theological terms, is known simply as the new birth or the spiritual birth, the work of regeneration. And the only adequate figure, it would appear, to describe this mighty work is the figure of a birth, because we're all so familiar with human birth. We have personal experience of being born, and we know many others who have that same experience also. And it's only through that birth from above that spiritual birth, that divine birth, that our heart is changed. We have a renewed heart and also a new nature. We have new tastes and wants and desires, new priorities and agendas and ambitions, new loves. We serve a new master. But you notice here in the verse 13, this birth was not of blood, so that no one can say, Ah, but I am a descendant of Abraham. I come with good credentials. Or someone can say today, Ah, but I had two godly parents during my childhood. I will rest on their faith. Oh, no. 
born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not by my own efforts at all, not of the acts or deeds of others, no, not at all, but only born of God. Now, briefly, one or two simple applications for us, friends, this morning. The first application, I think, in these verses is, as I indicated at the the front of my message, and that is the responsibility to be a witness. We talk about this a lot, about being a witness to Jesus Christ, but it's not easy work. It's challenging work. When you're face-to-face with another person who maybe is rather hostile to what you are saying or what you're about to say, and not very sympathetic, and would like to close you up, as it were. But we're called to be witnesses, as John the Baptist was a witness. We need to pray for help. We need to pray for opportunities. We need to pray for the words that we may speak on that occasion. Let us be those finger posts, pointing away from ourselves and pointing to our dear Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's check out that we have, in our own experience, a real experience of conversion. That as Christ prays in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, he mentions three things about his people, about those disciples. One, that they have kept my word. They have kept my word. Two, that they have received my word. And three, that they have believed on me. And so, we think of one or two individuals in the ministry of Jesus Christ who could say that. They had kept the word. They had received the word. They had believed on him. Think of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, a ruler of the Jews. And Christ said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again from above by the Spirit, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Think of the woman at the well of Sychar in John chapter 4. Jesus said to this woman, the water I shall give shall be a water of a well of water springing up into eternal life. Think of the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. He had a testimony. It was a very short and simple testimony. There's one thing I know, that once I was blind, but now... I can see. He didn't get into all the theology of what had happened to him, but he knew the practical and the real experience of what had happened to him. He could see now spiritually, and he could see physically. So the word is that whosoever may come, if we repent and if we believe upon Christ... Upon Christ, not just a fellow human being, not even a man of outstanding ability, which he was, not even a man of charismatic personality, which he had. But rather, if we believe on the one, as verse 14 tells us, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And finally, the final application, what is your estimate of the person of Jesus Christ. What is your estimate of him, the one who was active in creation, in history, continues to be active in this gospel age? 
The one who was perfect God and perfect man. The one who was described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Who was wounded for our transgressions. The one who suffered and died in our room and stead. Is it, is your response one of sheer indebtedness and of adoration, of praise and thanksgiving to the word that became flesh? The activity of the word, the announcement of the word, and later today, God willing, the appearance of the word. Amen.